I want to talk about David a little bit this morning. I want to talk about another saint, Jesus, briefly. Seems like Jesus should be mentioned. Uh, and then pray. So those kind of four things. So first, talk about David. So I want, to, I want to look at things from David's perspective. So this takes place, our reading, our first reading that we heard, takes place in the first book of Samuel, chapter 26. So to really kind of get a picture of what's going on here, we need to go back even to before David's time. So the Israelites demand from the Lord a king. Uh, the Lord gives them a king who is Saul. Saul is anointed by Samuel as the first king of Israel. And on the outside, Saul looks like the perfect first king. He's taller than everybody, stands head and shoulders above the rest. He's stronger, he's good looking. He probably had a really great beard, right? He, he seemed like he had it all. The problem with Saul that we find out is that he had a bit of a heart problem. Not that he had a bad physical heart, but spiritually, his heart was prone to turn away from the Lord. We learn this, that, that as he's anointed king, there are times when the Lord gives him a command and he'll mostly carry it out, but kind of save some for himself. Or there are times when, when the Lord gives a command and he does like the exact opposite. He does something completely different. He does things his own way. And so as we're reading the story, it turns into this sort of tragic thing like, oh man, this guy was, it seemed like he was going to be perfect for the job. But then the Lord tells us in the, uh, through Samuel that he has rejected him as king. The Lord has rejected Saul as king and he wants to find a man who doesn't have a heart problem. And so in chapter 16, we're introduced to the family of Jesse. Jesse has a number of sons. And again, uh, Samuel secretly goes to the family of Jesse to anoint the next king, right? Because he has to do it in secret. Because if Saul finds out that there's going to be a new king to be anointed, to take his place, right? It's not going to end well. So Samuel goes to the family of Jesse in secret. And he sees the sons of Jesse. And the first one, again, is like Saul. On the outside, his appearance looks perfect. Like, surely, Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is right here before me. And the Lord speaks to Samuel in that moment. He says, no, you're looking at things from the outside. That's not how I look. I look into the heart, and this is not my anointed. And it goes down the line to all of Jesse's sons until finally, there's, it seems like there's no one left, right? And, and Samuel's like, is this, are these all the sons you have? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm at the wrong house, you know? Uh, no, and Jesse says, no, there's one more, but I mean, he's tending the sheep and he's the youngest one. And Samuel says, oh, well, we got to go get him, right? So then to look at things from David's perspective, right? So like David is tending the sheep and he's just sort of doing what a shepherd does. The youngest of his family, you know, whatever. It, it says that he's splendid in appearance, but he's, he's just a kid, ultimately. Uh, and, and suddenly someone comes and says, hey, there's this prophet and you, you need to come because he's not starting the ceremony without you. And then, like, David, like, has to leave his sheep, right? And so he comes, and suddenly, Samuel, right then and there, anoints him as king. Right? So you can imagine, David is just sort of like, what the heck is going on? Like, this is crazy. I'm the king. Uh, except, right, it's a, it's a private, secret ceremony, so no one else knows it. 
And then what happens? In chapter 17, this is the famous story of David and Goliath, right? Where David goes to Goliath, this great giant who is such a formidable person that all of Israel, they're like shaking in their boots and no one is willing to go up against him. And David, right, young David, and uh, he, he stands up because he knows that he is the Lord's anointed. He knows that he's been given this extra strength from the Lord and that the Lord is with him in this fight, this battle. And so he goes and he takes down Goliath, right, this great victory. And then something really strange happens. This really strange thing is that Saul, who is still the public king, becomes incredibly envious of David. Because people see what David has done and they begin lifting him up and they, they exalt Saul, right? They say, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. Right? And so Saul, who is the public king, becomes very envious and he begins to try to kill David. So in chapter 26, we hear this, right? Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with 3,000 picked men of Israel to search for David, right? His goal is to kill him, to get rid of him. And this isn't the first time that this has happened. There are multiple times that David is literally running for his life from this crazy king, knowing full well, right? That, he's the, that David was anointed by the Lord to replace him. So again, try to imagine it from David's perspective. It's like, what the heck is going on? I didn't, I didn't ask for any of this. I was just with the sheep. Lord, you're the one who chose me. You're the one who interrupted my life. Or you can imagine him like trying to talk to Saul like, I didn't... I did you a favor by going and killing this giant that you were too afraid of. I, I didn't ask for all of this exaltation, all of this praise from the people. I didn't ask for any of this. Why are you trying to kill me? Right? So to imagine, like, and then, and then what happens, right, in our reading? David is presented with an opportunity to go and put an end to all of it. Right? Saul is asleep. David can sneak into the camp and easily just... Put an end to it, right? And, and imagine, right, with all of the tension, maybe the confusion, for sure, like the anger that's been building up in David, like, why am I running for my life? This is ridiculous. You can imagine all of that sort of culminating into this, this grand moment where it's like, okay, you have your chance, right? And then what does he say? Do not harm him, for who can lay hands on the Lord's anointed and remain unpunished? It's, it's as though he's saying, let it be the Lord's deal. Let it, like, I, I didn't ask for any of this, and so I'm not going to take anything that I didn't ask for. I'm just, I'm going to turn it over to the Lord and let him deal with it. And the Lord does eventually. But I just think to sort of stop and let ourselves be amazed at what David does, right? How many of us would do the same thing that he did. I think maybe a lot of us might be quick to say, oh, I for sure would. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, right, we would, we would hesitate. We would hesitate to do what David does. Reminds me of another saint. So uh, this last week I was on retreat with a bunch of priests from the archdiocese. And uh, before I went on retreat, I was eating lunch with some of our middle school students at our school. And one of the eighth graders was asking me about a saint. She, uh, he said, do you know St. Maria Goretti? And I said, yes, I'm familiar with it. And he's like, I just read a book about her. 
would you be willing, would you, do you want to read it? You might want to learn something about her. And I was like, if an eighth grader ever asks you if you want to read a spiritual book, you just say, absolutely, right? Because that means that they're reading something, right? And you want to support that they're reading something about Jesus or the saints. So I was like, of course, right? So he brings me this book and I read it. And uh, it's just like, it's such a, it's a very beautifully told story about St. Maria Goretti. She lived in the 1900s, just real briefly. Her family moved from one area of Italy to another area. Uh, they started renting out a farm and farming. Her dad, in the process of farming, got incredibly sick. So they had to hire somebody out to help them with the harvest. Back then, if you hired somebody out, they moved in to your house with you. And uh, eventually her dad became so ill that he died. Uh, and this, these two men, this, this father and his teenage son, moved into the house. And Maria Goretti was just 11 years old at the time. And this teenage son, we find, come to find out, had some really um, sinful things going on in his mind. And he wasn't trying to control them. And so one day in the field, Maria Goretti is working and this son, Alessandro, comes up to her and he speaks words and he's sort of acting like a crazy man. And it takes Maria a minute to realize, oh, he's trying to solicit grave sin with me. And Maria has been trained by her priest to prefer death over committing grave sin, which I think is a great lesson for us, right? What if we were to prefer death before ever committing grave sin. But nonetheless, she, she sort of resists him and runs away and hides. Later on in the story, he gets her alone in the house through an act of deception, and in the house, he tries to force himself upon her. But again, Maria, preferring death to grave sin, resists him with all of her strength, and even, it seems, with a little extra strength from the Lord. She resists him, and Alessandro goes into a rage and does such violence to her that he thinks that she's dead. He leaves her laying there on the floor, bloody and seemingly dead. Turns out that she doesn't die, her family discovers her, they bring her to the hospital, and just before she dies, a martyr, a virgin martyr. This is, this is what this book says uh, about her. When the priest offered to bring her Holy Communion, her face lit up with evident joy. She had been expecting that visitor. Slowly, she crossed her hands on her breast and asked her mother to raise the pillow a bit. Her soul was ready, but there remained one more heroic act before her final tryst with God. The chaplain reminded her of how Jesus had pardoned his murderers when he died upon the cross. She seemed to reflect. Her eyes rested upon the crucifix on the wall. Then, with the voice expressive of her generous soul, she said, Yes. For the love of Jesus, I too pardon him, and I want him to be with me in heaven. Imagine being Maria Goretti, right? I didn't ask for this. I was just trying to help my family in whatever way that I could. I was just trying to love Jesus, being obedient to my family, going to Mass, receiving communion, and, and just loving him as well as I could. I didn't ask for this. And here on her deathbed, she's presented an invitation to forgive her murderer, which I was just thinking, like, how many of us in today's world would say, that's a really insensitive question from that priest. How could he ask that question of this girl who was just basically killed by this man to forgive this man? And yet, right, and yet it's that question that opens the door for her to be heroically generous 
and offering her forgiveness and goodwill toward him. Like, God's grace is so mysterious and so powerful to forgive as she had been forgiven, to be merciful as God is merciful, right? Which, which of course, points us to Jesus, who on the cross, right, as he was dying, exactly as this chaplain pointed out, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right, you guys, like when Jesus in our gospel passage talks about this, right, about how love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you, he's speaking in a real way. Right? And when we encounter people like David, when we encounter saints like Maria Goretti, when we are face to face with Jesus, watching him die on the cross in our minds when we read the gospel, right? that is meant to pierce right into our hearts because it's meant to call attention that we ourselves might be at least a little hesitant to do the same, if not outright refusing to do the same. I know this because I know in my own life, there have been times when I have been mistreated or I felt mistreated and I have thrown a fit. I know there have been times in my life when I consider people that I dislike or even hate, people who I would consider my enemies, right? And I hesitate, if not outright refuse to pray for them and wish good for them. People who in my mind, I consider, well, if they're in heaven, I'm not sure I wanna go. Right? We, this, is, this is how we tend to be as people. And so I, what I want to do is just take a few minutes to just simply pray, to call upon the name of Jesus to help us so that we can, with his grace, we can forgive people who have mistreated us. With his grace, we can be merciful toward those people who just seem to get under our skin or, or they just seem to consume all of our attention because we have such distaste for them, maybe even hatred for them, right? So I'm talking about family members, betrayed, uh, betrayal in friendships, betrayal in marriages. I'm talking about the president or the former president, right? Who stirs up hatred like those two, right? I'm talking about people who like we just can't seem to have any goodwill toward. We want to call upon the name of Jesus and ask him to be powerful for us. So let's just simply pray. You can, you can close your eyes if you'd like. You can look up at the cross if you'd like. Uh, you can ask the Lord Jesus for help. And so we just want to pray. Jesus, Jesus, we call upon your name, your powerful name. At your name, Jesus, every knee shall bend. Those on earth, those in the heavens and under the earth. Jesus, be powerful in our minds and in our hearts. Jesus, in your name, we forgive our parents. In your name, Jesus, we forgive our fathers for all the times they have, they have slighted us or mistreated us or abused us. Jesus, in your name, we forgive our mothers for all of the times that they have mistreated us or spoken poorly against us or have abused us. Jesus, in your name, we forgive our siblings for the grudges and the rivalries that they have held against us or that we have held against them. Jesus, in your 
name. We pray for our spouses, especially any ex-spouses or spouses that we're just holding on to resentment toward. Jesus, in your name, we pray for our children. Jesus, in your name, we pray for any friends who have betrayed us. We offer our forgiveness in your name, Jesus. Jesus, in your name, we pray for our president. Jesus, in your name, we pray for our former president. We ask your mercy to be with those two men, Jesus, and all associated with them. Jesus, in your name, we pray for all politicians, all lawyers, all doctors, anyone who we just can't seem to see eye to eye with and it grinds against us. Jesus, in your name, we pray for those we see on social media, people who seem like they're just arrogant and prideful. Jesus, we pray for them that you may bring conversion and mercy to them. Jesus, we pray in your name for those members of the church, your representatives, especially among the leadership of the church. We pray for them, Jesus, those who have brought harm to your church, harm to our lives, harm to our parishes. Jesus, we pray for them. We ask you, Jesus, to make us merciful as you are merciful. Jesus, help us to let go of anger. Help us, Jesus, to let go of pain, to give it all to you. Jesus, we pray in your name for the gift of repentance, for any times in our lives that we have brought pain to others that we have provoked other people to anger and hatred and envy. Jesus, give us this gift to repent and bring about on this earth, especially among your people, the great gift of reconciliation. Help us to truly desire the good of salvation for all of your people. Help us to truly desire that all of your people can receive your mercy and share in the eternal bliss of heaven with David, with Maria Goretti, worshiping you, Jesus, who are so good and loving to all. We pray this all in your name. Amen.